0: I believe that faith is the most important thing in the world. By which I mean that faith is the link between ourselves and a God of transforming love, who saves us from sin and folly and ultimate disaster, who brings us into a life of joy and peace and wisdom and fruitfulness. Faith means, quite simply, trusting him by believing what he's told us. And remember, the real God, the God of the Scriptures, is a God who has revealed himself, he has spoken, he has given us promises to trust, faith trusts them, and the effect of trusting the promises and trusting the God of the promises is literally transforming. Whoever you are, you need this. And so I simply say, don't allow yourself to fancy that you've got faith when all that you really have is a sort of general optimism or hopefulness about the future. You only have faith when you have learned to trust God trust his word and treat him as a partner in your life whom you're trusting in the way that you would treat or spouse a good friend any human who has given you promises and on whom you rely to keep those promises once given. It makes the Christian life exciting yes it is. So I ask you have you ever reckoned seriously with the reality of faith and the possibility of a thrilling new life that results from exercising faith in the Father and His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ.
1: I have so much admiration and respect for the late J.I. Packer And that's who was speaking there. And I hope you could understand the words he was saying, just the notion of what real faith is, the sort of faith, genuine faith that's transformative and it's exciting, it's exhilarating, it changes our lives and I hope that will be be so for you, I hope that is so for you, I hope that's your experience in faith. You know, I was thinking of all the different implications of faith and we'll be in this chapter this week and next week, Hebrews chapter 11, so if you want to get ahead of me you can certainly open up there. And there's so many implications of faith. And we think about what James says in his epistle about faith, that uh, you show me your faith and I'll show you my works. Faith without works is dead. He was not contesting faith. Uh, he was not denying the centrality of faith. He was explaining the implications of faith. Faith that doesn't do anything, that doesn't cause anything, really isn't faith at all. It's something else. It's something other than what the Bible describes as faith. Um, I want to tell you this neat story today. It wasn't part of my sermon plan or anything. It just it happened last night, and typically I try to make, do my sermons before Saturday night. So uh, this wasn't in there yet, but it's a neat story, and it does relate to faith. Because one of the things that faith does is faith perseveres. You know, faith doesn't give up easily. Um, and one of the applications of persevering faith is prayer. And when you lay hold of something that you just keep seeking, keep asking God for. In fact, Jesus gave parables about that, right? About persevering prayer, that we ought always to pray and not give up. So let me tell you a neat story. Just Again, just came to me last night. Uh, my son Alex called me last night from Portugal after a basketball game. And I assumed he just wanted to talk about the game. It was our third game of the season, and he, he finally played well. So um, I thought he wanted to talk about that. And he said, hey, I want to tell you what happened tonight uh, at the game. I want to tell you something cool that happened. I said, okay. He said, after the game, he said, um, we are at home, and so we always go over and we stand facing our home audience, and we clap for them, appreciating them coming, and as I'm clapping for the audience with my teammates, I see a guy sitting in the stands, and he's wearing a Samford t-shirt, and when we finish, he calls out to me, and says, hey, Alex Thompson, come talk to me after the game so Alex is thinking, you know, actually, he's not in Portugal. He's in, he's, well, he's part of Portugal. He's in the Azores. So if you look at that, he's out in the middle of nowhere, little island, tiny island in the middle of nothing. And here's this guy wearing a Sanford shirt. He wants to talk to him afterwards. He tells him after the game that he came by the team's clubhouse during the week just to see if there were any Americans there. And he saw Alex's name and saw that he went to Sanford. And so he decided to come to the game. As it turns out, he's from Alabama. His son went to Sanford when Alex was there. And he's a missionary. And a church planter, and he invited Alex to dinner, and to his house for Thanksgiving, and to Bible study, and to church, and we have been praying. You know, Alex has been in four countries and four seasons, and we've prayed every single time. God sends some people there somehow, some way. You know, these small towns and different places, God sends somebody, and here in this tiny little island in the middle of nowhere, God sends a missionary from Alabama to reach a kid from Alabama and invite him in. So that's it's a neat story. It's just you know. So keep praying for those things, and keep praying for the people in your life that you care about. Keep praying for God to move. Keep praying for God to step in. Don't give up. Faith lays hold and doesn't let go. You know, it's just something faith does. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have laid hold of us in Christ. You've chosen us from the foundations of the earth. When we responded by faith to save your king, Jesus... He took us in, he received us, and he grips us so tightly that no one can pull us from his hand. We thank you that we're not just forgiven, we're free, and we have a future that's glorious because you promised it to be so, and not one of us is strong enough to undo it, and nothing in this world can take it from us, for it is your gracious gift to those who are yours. But, Father, it's not just for eternity that we live and require faith. It's for tomorrow. It's for today. It's for whatever comes around that next corner in our lives that requires us to require you. So, Father, teach us some of faith today and stir up faith in us and grant to us the spiritual blessing, gift of faith for those places and times and situations for which we lack it. Father, may we please you with faith today. Maybe somebody for the first time puts their faith in Jesus today. Maybe someone has their faith renewed or restored today. May all of us grow in it today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 11, starting verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's probably the only specific definition that you find in the New Testament that succinctly decides or determines for us what is faith. This is faith. Assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now here are the implications of it. For by it, the people of God received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Let's do this for a moment, just for context sake. Um, It's always necessary for us, and pardon me if this is a redundant reminder, but it's critical really to understand any text that you consider the context and what's happening around it and how those pieces bridge together. And so considering where we've been in Hebrews is this continuous thought, this continuing discourse of who God is, and why we should trust Him, and why we should not abandon this great salvation in Christ, here's a bridge that helps us understand the necessity of faith. Why is faith absolutely critical to everything? Why is it the component that links us to God and enables us to enjoy the things God has given us? I mean, why is faith the centerpiece here? Well, let's look at a couple of thoughts, let me try to build this case for a moment. Last week, we saw in Hebrews 10, that we're commanded to draw near to God. Now, that's the whole point of everything, by the way. If I were to summarize the whole point of everything we've considered in 10 chapters of Hebrews so far, I would say the point is this. God is working in your life right now to draw you close to him. He wants you to know him and trust him and enjoy him. And that's what he's working in your life. And he's eliminating those things in your life or working to eliminate those things in your life that would keep that from happening. Things that you pursue that aren't worth it. Things that are distractions or detours. Uh, sins that diminish the goodness of God in your life, the glory of God in your life, your ability to even perceive God in your life. You know, trying to guide you through wisdom and love to himself because where God is is everything that's good. And the great aim of our salvation is not just that we get heaven, it's that we get God and that we get everything that God is. And so God is trying to draw us into his perfect, perfect goodness. Everything about him that's good. And so the point of this is to accomplish that. We're commanded to draw near. Now, the only way you and I can draw near Is if a way is made for us. Because it's sin that keeps us from drawing near. God is holy, infinitely so. God is just, perfectly so. And we're sinful. That's just the bottom line. That's not something I really have to argue much. There's some points over the years in preaching, ministry, and just talking with people, counseling with people that you do have to kind of establish or debate a little bit. Human sinfulness is typically not one of those because we kind of get it. In fact, we get that about ourselves better than anyone gets it about us. That's the divide between us and God. And it cannot be overcome. By us. That's an insurmountable object for us. But God made a way in Christ. So we know that He's the high priest that goes before us to the Father. And what is He taking to appease the Father? As the high priest goes, when when Jesus is interceding for us before the Father, He's not interceding with just words. Hey, these people aren't that bad. Hey, they're really pretty good guys. Hey, God, get to know them a little bit better. You might actually like them. That's not what He's doing. He's interceding with sacrifice, He's interceding with payment. He's interceding with the biblical term we call atonement. So he's taking the punishment for our sins that we rightly deserve because we are sinful and God is just. He pays it for us. He becomes a sacrifice for our sins. And then he himself delivers that sacrifice to the Father. And so now he makes a way. Everything that's required for us to be able to draw near is made possible by Christ. And that's true for all of you listening here today. Let me make that maybe a little bit plainer, just in simple terms. Everything that separates you from God, Jesus is the remedy for. There's no reason why any of us should ever die absent a relationship with God in Christ. There's no reason why anybody should ever remain an enemy of God, estranged from God, separated from God. Jesus has made a way for you. He's made a way for your sins to be forgiven, for you to know the one that created you, the one that loves you, the one that built you for eternity. God made you for that. But we're never going to draw near to God unless we have faith. What is required for us to embrace what God has done for us in Christ? Faith. And faith becomes our pleasing response to God. When we understand what God has done for us, then we embrace it. And we build our lives around it. God is pleased. What honors God? That. It honors God when we believe what he has said and done, Embrace it with our hearts. Build our lives around it. God is not looking that we would honor ourselves or elevate ourselves. He wants himself, his glory, to be honored and elevated. Hebrews 11.6, a verse I just read a moment ago, tells us plainly, without this faith, you cannot please God. So let me say this just as an aside to this. It doesn't matter, ultimately, how good you are before God. Anyone who argues personal goodness, uh, personal, I don't know, valor, um, personal achievement, personal integrity before God, that's it's a worthless argument ultimately. It doesn't matter how good you are if you don't have Christ, because you'll never be good enough. You'll never measure up. And God is not honored ultimately by our goodness. He's honored by our faith in the goodness of Christ. It's Christ who goes before us. So without it, nothing we do is acceptable to God. Now that is worth a few sermons on its own. But Paul describes this in Romans fourteen twenty three when he says, whatever does not proceed from faith, is sin. Th- th- think about this for a moment. Whatever philanthropy you engage in, whatever community good work you do, whether it's something huge like in- endowing a hospital or helping your neighbor with their groceries, do you realize ultimately, though that is a good deed and certainly receives the accolades of friends and neighbors and family members, unless a person has faith in Christ, it has no value before the Father? All our righteousness, Isaiah said, is like filthy rags. You ever consider the implications of that? You mean every good thing I do ultimately has no benefit? Yes, because whatever doesn't proceed from faith ultimately is sin. Because what honors God is that we put our faith in him and then live according to that faith. We can't get around it. This is what's necessary. And then we're reminded at the end of chapter 10 that this sort of faith we're talking about has to be enduring. It doesn't mean you're earning your salvation as you go. It doesn't mean that salvation or justification is on a payment plan. It means that real salvation is rooted in a faith that doesn't go away. How do we know if your faith is real? Because it stays. It doesn't mean that it's always 100%. It doesn't mean that you don't have challenges to your faith, crises of faith. It doesn't mean that your faith doesn't wane at times. What it does mean is that ultimately that faith endures. It stays. It perseveres to the end. The Bible says if it doesn't, it's worthless. Consider verse 39 in chapter 10. Here's the contrast. We are not of those who shrink back. So I'm not shrinking back from faith, no longer believing, abandoning the faith. The technical word is apostasizing. We are not those who apostatize and are destroyed, but we are those who have faith and preserve their souls. And it's clear, we can see this theme in multiple scriptures, that what does God honor? He honors those who finish. You finish, you run the race, you keep the faith, you finish well. That's a challenge. So, if faith is necessary in everything, necessary to please God, necessary to draw near to God, the ultimate aim of God for us, and that once we have it, we hold it, we've got to make sure we get what it is correct. Right? We've got to know what, what is the essence of faith. Now, you have a succinct definition, as I said, in Hebrews 11.1. 1, the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Sometimes it's easier to define a thing by telling you what that thing is not. Let's start there. What is faith not? Because we hear a lot of um, notions and descriptions, conceptions of faith that I think are either not biblical, just by slight degree, are absolutely anti-biblical in their notion. Now, I borrowed some of these thoughts from a great site you might want to reference at some point called Cross-Examined. It's a Christian apologetic site called Cross-Examined. It had an article about some of the notions of wrong notions of faith. One of those wrong notions is this, and you may have heard this before, and, and we even misinterpret this from Scripture, I think, sometimes. And it's the idea that faith is blind. But faith ultimately is not blind. Now, I know 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says this, we walk by faith, not by sight. Right? How many of you have heard that verse? We walk by faith, not by sight. But the implication in that verse is not that faith is blind. You're not taking a blind leap of faith. In fact, if you look at the whole context, remember how important context is to everything. Just take a quick glance at the context, you can see that what the Apostle Paul is talking about there is that this world is not our home. This is is not all that we are. And his point there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is that we not be so focused on this world that we lose sight of what our real home is. Don't get so caught up that you forget about the next, the one that you haven't seen yet. It doesn't mean that the next one is not real. It just means you haven't seen it yet. So you have faith in what is to come. That's the context. So faith is not blind. Second thing is faith is not belief without evidence. I mean, faith, does have its, faith has its reasons. The infamous atheist author, Richard Dawkins, says this. He says, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence, said Richard Dawkins. That's a straw man, for sure, and that's the straw man that Dawkins raises in just about everything he writes or argues, and, and then he defends it, but is that really the definition that faith has in the Bible. Again, there's a site called Stand to Reason, another good apologetic site. And Alan Shelman in Stand to Reason wrote this. He said, by this, he said, this definition, the Dawkins definition, is foreign to the Bible. The Greek word for faith is your short, very brief Greek lesson, pistis, is derived from the word pisteo, which means to convince by argument. Hebrews 11.1 1 explains that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Some translations replace conviction with evidence. Faith, then, is being convinced that the things we can't see, like God, or like heaven, or like the resurrection, or like the Holy Spirit, are real. That's faith, not without evidence, not blind. Third thing is faith is not a leap. I saw a picture posted this week on Facebook of one of my professors in college. I was a religion and philosophy major, and I I will admit in those college days, um, before God grabbed hold of my life real hard, I was not really a devoted student and was kind of coasting through, and and she was a great professor and challenged my thinking a lot, and uh, I just put a little note under her picture. I said, you know, one of my favorites, one of my favorite college professors, I wish I had been as good a student as you were a professor. And what I was actually thinking was an assignment she had given, and I wrote a paper on Soren Kierkegaard. And the title of the paper was Zorn Kierkegaard, God or Devil. And I wrote a really lame paper, which is one of those I wish I could retract. Maybe some of you in college have some of those too. Wish I could rewrite that whole thing. And fact, it may do it and just submit it to her. She's retired now. Maybe she'll read it. Um, telling her I got the whole thing wrong. And sorry I didn't read enough to really know what I was talking about. But one of the statements that Kierkegaard wrote about faith, a 19th century philosopher, if you're not familiar with him, he's the one that's. Attributed, at least, with coining the phrase, the leap of faith. Leap of faith. That's how he described faith. Again, it's kind of the previous points we've talked about, but this is what Kierkegaard's idea of faith was. He divorced faith from evidence. He considered faith to be more experiential than anything that has to do with reality. He said that faith has to be met with intense self-reflection, and the life of faith is ultimately submitting yourself to something that cannot be known in any real sense. Here's what he said. He said, faith is closing your eyes and jumping out of a plane, a flip of a coin, a blind leap. But is that how faith is for us? Or do we have a sense of who God is, what he's revealed in Jesus, and what he says? It's not a blind leap, and I'll come back to that in just a moment. I also mentioned just a second ago that faith is not an all-or-nothing reality. This is important for us all to hear. Faith is not an all-or-nothing reality. Because ultimately, when it comes to God working in our lives, he doesn't work on the basis of us. He works on the basis of himself. And that's why Jesus would use analogies like this, analogies to the extreme. If you have faith like a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. He didn't say if you had faith like a mountain, you can move mustard seeds. Because what's the point of faith? Does God work because we have faith, or does God work and we have faith in the God who works? It's much like prayer. You know, we might say sometimes, I believe in prayer because prayer works. Well, technically, I would say no to both of those. I believe in God, and I believe in God works, and I believe that God works when we pray. And so because we believe in God and because we believe that God works, therefore we pray. But if we begin to have faith in prayer or faith in faith or faith in our faith, then it's a very misplaced faith. Does that make sense? Nod your head, because I'll keep going on this until everybody gets it. I don't have faith in how much faith I've got. I have faith in an awesome God who is mercy towards me, is gracious towards me, and recognizes that sometimes um, I don't have as much faith as I should. It's not an all-or-nothing condition. Consider Mark 9, 23-25. You probably remember the story when we were in the Gospel of Mark. A man asked Jesus to perform miraculous healing, and he says something that you and I would probably never be guilty of saying in our prayers. Dear God, you know, please heal my child you know, if you can. And Jesus said to him, if you can. All things are possible for one who believes. But immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So what did God do? How did God respond to that honest prayer for more faith? That honest acknowledgement that sometimes prayer is not a zero-sum game. There are times when I've got much more of it. There are times when I'm riding high and there are times when I'm hitting lows. God hears that and honors that. So what does he do? He rebuked the unclean spirit saying, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him. Again, and there probably aren't many of us that can't identify with that sort of feeling sometimes. I believe, help my unbelief. And so faith is not always 100%. Faith is also not a substance. Again, that's why we don't have faith in faith. You know, that's sort of the way that modern faith teachers and uh, word faith teachers and prosperity gospel teachers present it. That if something's not happening in your life that you want to see happening, if you're not getting healed, if you're not being blessed at work, if things aren't coming together, whatever, if you're not being prosperous, if you're not succeeding, it's probably because you don't have enough of something, a substance of something, faith. But the Bible never describes faith like that. Our faith is the means by which we lay hold of God. God is our substance, not not the faith. Let me tell you what faith is. I was listening to an interesting study by Dr. Guy Richard. He's the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Atlanta. He was describing faith. He says, historically, faith, biblical faith, Christian faith, is built on three concepts. Now, there's not notes for this in your notes. You can write it somewhere or write on your neighbor's arm or something. Ask them to take a picture, send it to you. These are three elements. He says, historically, Christian faith is based on knowledge. I mean, I have to believe in something to be true, right? I have to believe in something. It's important for us all to know what we believe. What is it that I actually am saying, this I, I believe, I, I, I trust in this. I have, a, I have an intellectual content here that I, you know, that I say is true. Um, scriptures speak to that. Romans ten nine. If you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, you'll be saved. Or John 20, 31. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life. So it starts with... It starts with this idea of of knowledge. I have to believe something. Faith means believing certain propositional statements to be true. Even Hebrews 11 started with that. It starts with the God of creation. Our faith is rooted in this. At the beginning, God. And then everything else flows from there. And so you've got so many different examples from these texts. So the first is knowledge. I have to know something to have faith in it. Second, historically, has been assent. Assent. This is the conviction that the knowledge I have is true and it's it's beneficial to me. So not only do I look at this in the sort of the abstract, I believe those things to be true, but I believe that those things I believe in are rooted in fact and they mean something to me. I I assent to these things. You know, they actually meet our needs. And we can see this in passages like John 5 and John 8 and John 10 and etc. So it's here's the facts. Here, I believe those things to be true, and they mean something to me. That's assent. But the third knowledge, I mean, sorry, I skipped ahead of myself. The third component is the most important of the three. There's knowledge, assent, but then there's trust. There's trust here, by far the most important. If you don't have this trust, then your faith would be, as Jesus would describe, like the faith of demons. Demons know the truth. They know the facts. They know the identity of Jesus. They know the work of God in the world. They don't know the authority and sovereignty of God. The Bible says even they believe and they tremble, but you're not going to be sitting with them in heaven. You're not going to be sharing floor space in your mansions in glory with them, right? Why? They have no trust in this. They have no love for. They have no fidelity to all of this. So the idea here is personal trust. Our faith is based on first personal trust in what? Christ. Who he is. What he's done. What he said. And what he still will do. So we have a personal trust in them that we're looking to. Now the part of the, the lecture that was most beneficial to me was Dr. Uh, Richards' give, uh, his illustration. How we might understand this. It's sort of like uh, evokes a bit of a Hunger Games picture. He says, imagine if you will, you have three people. And without food or supplies, they're dropped into a middle of a field. Which they are told is just laden with hidden minds. They're in a field full of mines. They're dropped down, and they have to find their way out of this, okay? So the first person, with their misunderstood notion of faith, decides they'll go out blindly, figuring they're just going to make the best of it and give it a shot. That's blind faith. That's a leap of faith. There are minds all over the place. I'm going to run for it. Well, you can imagine how that might play out. He said, but then there are two people left, obviously. <laughs> you have two people left. He so said, imagine there's two people left there standing there, considering the remains of the first, and a helicopter flies over. And as the helicopter hovers over them, they hear this booming announcement. Um, I know where the mines are, and I can tell you where to go if you'll, just, if you'll just listen to me. You know, if you'll follow me out of here, I can give you directions, and I can get you to safety. Okay? Now that requires the third level. Now we move to the third level. There's knowledge." And there's a scent, but is there trust? Is there trust? Because the wise person in the group would begin to ask this person who's making the announcement, Who are you? How do you know? Why should I trust you? Because I'm putting everything in your hands, I'm putting my whole life in your hands. And if I determine that that person is trustworthy, They are who they say they are. They do what they say they do. They've done what they said they'll do, and I can count on them to keep their promises to me. Then I would put my life in their hands, and I would trust them, and that's what faith is. Faith is when I've considered it, determined it to be true, determined it to be true so that I would give assent to it in my life that this is what I need. This is what changes things for me, and then deciding that the person who makes these promises is in fact trustworthy and true, and I can believe in him. So for me, if I'm writing a definition of faith just to myself, it's this. Faith is when I lay hold of God. Because of what His Holy Spirit has done in me, because of what His His Word reveals to me, I've laid hold of God through Christ. And I'm not letting go. That's faith. I'm not letting go. Now I know that He's also holding me that whole time. He's keeping me. But to me, that is faith. And that's the journey of life that we're all on. I mean, you've got to decide. You're going to navigate all this world on your own, blindly? You're just going to try to figure it out as you go? You're going to hit all the landmines along the way? Or are you going to believe in something? You're going to believe in someone, something that's going to guide you. And will your belief and your confidence and your trust in that someone be so great that even when you can't see exactly what's going on or why, even when you can't understand everything that's told to you and why, And even when a future is promised to you that's hard to wrap your mind around because even the Bible itself says of the promise that no eye has seen it, no ear has heard it, no mind can conceive of it what God has in store for those who love him, you lay hold of it and you won't let go of it no matter what. You won't abandon it. That's when you make the jump from simply having something you called faith to being faithful. Remember I said that last week? we got to move from just saying we have faith in something to being faithful to him who gives this. That's the jump. And What is Hebrews chapter 11 about? Hebrews chapter 11 is reminding you, reminding me, we're not the first people to take this life journey. You're not the first person to go through stuff. You're not the first person to have incredible challenges or great pains, enormous obstacles. There is a, there's a history record preserved and inspired by God himself, of those who please God because of their faith and their stories. One of the great values of the Old Testament for us, their stories are there so you can see what faith looks like. So you can see faith in the concrete, not in the abstract. So you can see faith not in the feeling, the emotion, but in the steps and the actions and the perseverance. And that's what this is about. So you have five faith case studies in this first little section. And I'm going to give the simplest summary of each, just for a moment. So track with me quickly. First, you've got Abel. You know Abel's story, right? Abel had a brother named Cain. We know that didn't end well. We know it's the first murder in the Bible. It's almost inexplicable to us because it just comes right out of Eden. Just departing Eden and the idyllic family, the first family, already there's this level of dissension and discord and hatred that would result in murder. But Abel is commended. Hebrews tells us he's commended for his faith. Now, sometimes when we look back at that story, if you're familiar with it, if not, you can pull it out in Genesis. There are two sons, both made sacrifices to God. Now, if you remember the story, Cain made his sacrifices from the field. Those were crops. Abel made his sacrifice of an animal. It was a blood sacrifice. Now, I've heard it argue before, and I've heard it in a sermon before. That God wanted a blood sacrifice, and so he rejected the, I don't know, the vegan sacrifice, the vegetarian sacrifice. But that really is not what it's all about at all. Because we know in the Old Testament, when we look through the various types of sacrifices, there were grain offerings. There were non-blood offerings required in the Old Testament. It really wasn't about the content of their sacrifice. It wasn't what's above the waterline. It was what's beneath the waterline. Somehow, as Cain is giving his sacrifice, there's a deep hypocrisy there. He doesn't love the God he's offering sacrifice to, nor value his will. When Abel offers his sacrifices, it's out of reverent worship, respect for God, and and obedience. So I would say the demonstration of Abel's life is this. Faith is the right response to God's commands. And the key word there is the right response. The right response to God's commands is not always mere obedience. It's not always mere obedience. Would you agree with that? Now, listen, parents, you got kids. That's what made you a parent. That's how I knew that. So, parents, you have kids. And ultimately, what you want from them when you tell them something to do is obedience, right? I mean, the bottom line is obedience. I mean, again, ultimately, you don't have to like it. You don't have to agree with it. You can murmur under your breath about it, but you're going to do it. That's the point. And the reason I'm telling you, to do whatever it is I'm telling you to do, if I'm decent at all as a parent, it's for your benefit, it's for your protection, it's for your safety, it's for your future, etc., right? You want it done. But in your heart, and really ultimately as you work out that relationship and future, you want them to do it for the right reasons. You want them to do it out of respect. We're commanded in Scripture not just to obey our parents, but to honor them as well. That means we don't just simply comply with rebellion or attitude or you know dissension. Is that our hearts go with us? Our hearts lead us out. Well, isn't that surely what God wants as well? Abel's worship came from the heart, and God committed his faith. It's the right response. Not just the obedient one, but obedience for the right reasons is the right response to God's commands. It's the only right response. We obey for the right reasons, and God honors that. Then there's Enoch. You guys know the story of Enoch? I remember when we were in the, we were in the Holy Land on one of our trips, and And we went over. One of the coolest places in the Holy Land is uh, the Tomb of Enoch. You can see where Enoch was buried and all that kind of stuff. I'm testing you guys. You guys with me? There is no Tomb of Enoch, okay? Guy's gone. You know, the Bible says it this way, and he was not. That's pretty cool, right? And he just, hey, where's Enoch? He's not. He was not. Hey, was Enoch with you? He was not. He's just gone. The Bible says that God translated him. You know, he translated this earthly body to an eternal one. He took him. Why did God take him? We don't know much about Enoch, right? Scripture doesn't tell us. What do we know of Enoch? He honored God. He pleased God. And so the picture we see here is that faith is the consistent desire to please God with my life. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. Now, I don't know what you want written on your tombstone. You can't have that, by the way, because that's not happening for you. I don't think. You'd be only the second, I think. Well, you'd be number three. I think Elijah got that treatment. But Man, what a life statement. He walked with God, and then he was not. That's faith. See, that's not just believing something to be true. I believe in God. Oh, I believe in heaven. No, that's that's taking that belief and it affecting every part of your life. Because you believe in him, what do you do with that? He walked with him. He trusted him. We could draw all sorts of right implications from that, even though Scripture doesn't say it's a consistent desire to please God. Then what about Noah? Okay, you guys know what Noah did, right? Everybody know? Okay, I won't go over that story. You know what Noah did? Have you ever considered some of the details of the Noah story? If you've been with us on Wednesday nights because we've been covering the book of Genesis, you have because we hit them. We hit a lot of those details. But consider at least these two parts of the details of the Noah story. Okay, so God tells Noah that he's going to send a cataclysmic flood to destroy the earth. Now, this is an earth that hasn't seen rain like this and he tells them to this is for your family's sake to save your family and of course ultimately for all who believe now so think about the real life implications of this command that god gave noah to do okay for people who've never seen rain and who live in a desert i want you to build a ginormous boat a what a boat I'll i'll explain it as i go i want you to build this boat now building this boat takes a long time many many years now, you can just imagine, you can speculate at the sort of conversations and ridicule that Noah would have endured by all the people around him, a people who were, as the Scripture describes, pretty evil, everybody doing what was right in their own eyes. So you've got a people that aren't too keen on God or godly things or certainly the warnings of God. Can you imagine the mockery and ridicule that Noah must have endured year after year after year while he builds the most ridiculous thing that the planet has ever seen? But it's not just the ridicule of a guy who's silent with a hammer, because the Bible tells us in the New Testament regarding Noah, 2 Peter 2.5 says that he was a herald, or depending on your translation, a preacher of righteousness. So while Noah is building this boat, he's not just concerned with pegs and wood and tar and pitch, he's concerned with the condition of the people all around him, and he's telling them why he's building this boat. This, build, this boat I'm building is for your salvation because you are under the judgment of God. There's never been a time in history where that's popular. But he's doing this, and the Bible says in this passage that by this work, he condemned the world. He condemned the world by building a boat. He condemned the world by building a boat that offered them salvation, which they emphatically rejected. And so faith in this situation, this is allegiance to God without fearing the world. That's what real, real world faith is. You ask Noah what his faith looked like? It wasn't some high and lofty philosophical notion. It was this. Faith means I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to keep working on that boat. And I'm going to have people come by. They're going to ridicule me and they're going to mock God. And I'm going to keep telling them. And I'm not going to to worry. I'm not going to worry anymore about what my perception is or my reputation is among people. I'm going to care what God thinks. It's allegiance to God without fearing the world. That's real life faith. Okay? Abraham. Man, we've talked a bunch about Abraham on Wednesday nights of late. And Abraham was referred to so frequently in the book of Hebrews. I mean, he is the prototype of of faith, the the father of faith. Even the the gospel explained to us in Romans describes the faith of Abraham as being indicative of the kind of faith that saves us today. It's interesting in this passage because it points out how Abraham's faith played out. Because remember, God came to Abraham and he told him to leave the place and the people and all the things that you have and go to a place where I will show you. And God didn't chart it out. He didn't tell him, these are the things that are going to happen. These are the places you're going to go. These are the enemies you're going to encounter. These are the problems you're going to face. But just stick with me because here's how it all plays out. He didn't have that. We have that. We can read the story and see it from beginning to end. All he knew was to go and I'll show you. So in a sense, it looks like he didn't really know where God was taking him until you read the rest of the passage and the beautiful way in which the Old Testament translates the new. And you see that he did, in a much more important sense, know where God was taking him. Because the passage says God was taking him to his promised inheritance. When Abraham started following God, He followed him because he did know where God was taking him. He was taking him to his intended future for him. And so I think of faith in Abraham's context is this. It's trusting God because I do know where he's taking me. No, I don't know the specifics. I don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. And I don't know the challenges around the way. But I do know this. Much like Abraham, God has made a promise to me. And if you're in Christ, he's made a promise to you. I'm going to work everything together for good for those that love me, those that call call according to my purpose. I was listening to a sermon the other day where somebody preached Romans 8.28, and they preached it by itself. You can't preach Romans 8.28 by itself. It does not stand by itself. How can God promise that he's going to work everything for good? Because the one that started our salvation carries it all the way to glory. He knows where he's taking us. He knows what he's doing in us. It's all the rest of Romans 8 and 9 that makes Romans 8.28 possible. Because God is doing this, and so that's faith. Abraham had to learn along the way, imperfectly for sure. I've got to trust that God's taking me somewhere that's good. It's for His glory. It's for my good. And what about Sarah? I mean, certainly Sarah, wow, she struggled with faith. She laughed when God told her what was going to happen. I'm an old lady. I'm going to get pregnant. This doesn't, this doesn't happen in the real world. But again, the, the New Testament translates for us to old and we see that God commended her faith, and because of her faith, he carried out that blessing, that promise. And exactly what God said he would do, he did. Now, whether her, her faith is exemplified after the fact or before, I'm not really sure. But certainly after that moment, she would never doubt ever again. Look at what God has done. Look at what God has done. Perfectly done. Again, she staggered to it, but finally, ultimately, She trusted God. The Scripture says she judged God to be faithful. I can trust Him. He keeps His promise. And isn't that faith? I mean, faith is believing that God is faithful. Faith is believing that what He says is true. What He promises, He'll do. The things that we see assured us in Scripture will be so. And we build our lives around that. So we're not living for temporary gain, short-term gain. We're not living for the applause of people. We're not living for temporal success. We got our we got our mindset on what God has promised, and we live for that. We build our lives around the fact that God is true and I can trust him. So if God says something, I believe it. If God commands something, then if we believe him to be good and true, we do it. Because we know these things. He's faithful, and we stake our lives on it. And then finally, this passage circles back to Abraham one more time. And I'm gonna close with this. Abraham. We just covered this a week and a half ago. our midweek Bible study. And it's the pinnacle story of Abraham's faith in the Old Testament. If you know Abraham, you probably know the story I'm referring to. After this long journey and many ups and downs of his faith, God finally provides miraculously a child, a legitimate heir, the promised one, the one through whom God would do what he said he would do with Abraham. He would expand his kingdom and place and his... His children and grandchildren would be like sands of the seashore or stars in the sky, and that he would bless the nations through him. I mean, how is that going to be fulfilled? Now we see his name's Isaac, the child of promise. And then God tells Abraham, sacrifice your son, your one and only son, Isaac. And we see this almost inexplicable, nearly incomprehensible story of Abraham saddling up his son and all the elements needed to make a a, An altar, a burning sacrifice, but there's no animal to be sacrificed there. And sometimes people look at that story with skepticism and say, "Do you really think Abraham was going to sacrifice his son?" I mean, he he really. I mean, he knew that God really wouldn't ask that. It's like at the last moment, he knew God was going to retract that. Right? This is not like there's some other lesson here. But again, when you read the New Testament interpretation of it, you see that's not so. In fact, we see clearly that Abraham was, as he raised the knife to his son, willing to obey God. So why? Why would he do that? I mean, that just that boggles the modern mind. Abraham believed in something so certainly, so emphatically, that he would stake everything on it. And you say, well, he wasn't staking his life on it. But I would say you would only feel that way if you weren't a dad or a mom. Because if I'm called to sacrifice my son, I would certainly rather negotiate with God and say, can it be me instead? So no, he's willing to put it all out there on that altar. Why? What did he believe that enabled him to do that? He believed that even if he slayed Isaac at God's command, God would bring him back from the dead. He believed in the power of the resurrection to change everything. Now that is deep, deep faith. See, that's not just theological or philosophical. That's his boy tied up on an altar and his hand at the knife and he believed that God would bring him back. How do you know that? Because the scripture says that. We'll see this verse next week, verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did, receiving him back, because he was as good as dead. Listen, it's, it's the deep sort of faith that bridges to your faith and mine. It's the confident assurance that the power of God is so incredibly displayed in ways we have not even yet laid hold of through the resurrection of Christ, that same mighty power that Paul wrote to the Ephesians that works effectively in us, That the power of the resurrection changes everything. I don't have to be who I used to be. I can be set free from everything that once dominated me. I can draw close to the Lord. I can enjoy Him and know Him. The power of the resurrection makes this possible. He makes all people who come to Him new. He makes all things new for those who come to Him. In Christ, we're new creations. God having made all things new. That's the power of the resurrection. So I say in closing this. Faith in God is. It is something. It's knowledge. It's assent. It's trust. It's based on facts. Facts that I believe in, that I believe are beneficial to me. And I have trusted everything to that. But faith also does something. It affects how we live. It affects how we arrange our priorities. It it, it affects the decisions that we make and the moral choices that we make. And ultimately, genuine faith, the mark of it, how do we know if it's real? it stays. It stays. Well, sometimes we feel like our grip on it is loosening. Yeah, we will. And those times we know that we're gripped, that we're not just gripping. Will there be times where things are easier, better, and easier to have faith in? Yeah, but true faith in, it endures. I'm going to pray you to have it. I want you to pray with me this morning. Father God, I pray that you would awaken faith in someone today who has not had it, things they've not believed or not seen or not understood or not valued or not trusted in, that today they would, that they would see it as you who made them, you who charted a course for their life. And in their sin, they have separated themselves from you. They have rebelled against you, the Almighty. They've denied themselves the very thing that you most want for them, that they would be close to you. And yet in great mercy, you made possible a reconciliation. You made possible a full and total payment for sin, a, a complete an absolute change of heart, a total reclamation and restoration of us through Jesus. And if they would believe that Jesus is the Son of God who loved them and gave himself for them and was resurrected for their sake so they might have new life and is coming again, and if they'll place their trust in Jesus, today they can be saved. I pray that you would awaken, enable that sort of faith in someone today who would say, God, save me through Jesus, I believe. And I pray that for the rest of us in this room who name you as Father, who claim him as King, um, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, may we grow in our willingness, our desire, our intention, our decisions to trust you in all things. Pray us in Jesus' name. Amen.